1: Hello, thank you for joining us on this New Books in Folklore podcast, which is one of many podcast channels on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and today I have three guests. These are folklore professors Shelley Ingram, who's based at the University of Louisiana in Lafayette, Willow Mullins from Washington University in St. Louis, and Todd Richardson of the University of Nebraska at Omaha. And they're going to be talking about the book that they've just written together, which is called Implied Nowhere Absence in Folklore Studies. It's described on the book's webpage as a groundbreaking inquiry into what is missing in folklore and folklore studies. Shelley, Willow, and Todd, welcome to New Books in Folklore. Hi, Thank thanks. You. I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourselves and about how you came to work together. Maybe I'll start with you, Shelley.
2: Well, I decided to be a folklorist when I was sitting in a a folklore class taught by Carolyn Ware at LSU, and I saw the PBS documentary on American Roots Music. And I saw someone on on screen, I don't remember who it is now, but it said underneath it, it, it had the title Folklorist. And that's when I thought, hey, this is something that I can do for a living. And I was totally surprised because I didn't know you could do that for a living. And I thought that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, so I Went to graduate school at the University of Missouri and studied with uh, Anand Perlot and Elaine Lawless, and that's where I met these two folks. And as as we were working, we realized that um, a lot of the stuff that we were interested in really did. We we were all speaking to each other, um, and I think what we thought were really interesting ways. So I think one um, AFS, we just decided, you know, hey, let's let's write a book if other people won't um you know if we can't write a book on our on our own let's just do it together and see what happens
1: that's great so willow do you want to take out the story including how you came to be a
3: folklorist well i think my my story is a little bit like Shelley's in that i was an undergrad and in college and um happened to take a class in folklore and unfortunately i can't remember the professor's name it was at university college cork in ireland on a study abroad program um, and thought, wait a minute, this is a thing I, I can do. I had been in comparative literature on the basis that that was the best way I could read stories for the rest of my life, um, and then realized, hey, wait a minute, there's this folklore thing that's even better, um, and I again, ended up at University of Missouri. Um, I think it was, it was at AFS that we decided to get into this, and I, it was a little like the, 2 a.m. conversation where a group of friends decides they're going to buy a bar um, we decided we were going to write a book.
1: <laughs> so Todd briefly your story and perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about the impetus behind this particular book. I talk about my
0: story a little bit in the book in that um, I I became a folklorist kind of accidentally that uh, I went to the University of Missouri but I wanted to study creative nonfiction, and the program or the the, the program in creative nonfiction just completely fell apart. Like as soon as I was there and, and the folklore professors of Missouri are very strong personalities uh, and they're, they, they were irresistible. Uh, and so I just kind of came to folklore that way, which I actually think has been a great advantage just because, um, and I think this is another thing that, that, you know, was kind of one of the themes of the book is that the field of folklore has it has many true believers. Um, and so it's, it's kind of nice when, when, when uh, you, you can have perspective or, or you come to it in different ways and you see things that people don't necessarily see. And I think we all have that in common. And I, the only thing I would add to the, to the story of the book is that I, I didn't really think it was going to happen. Uh, like I, I, you know, it was like a dare. Um, and the fact that it got published was like, like at every stage, it was like, oh, wow, they're really going to let us say the things, um, that we're saying. And so it's just been really cool in that, that aspect.
1: I was alerted to the book by my colleague at the Ohio State University, Dr. Cassie Patterson. And she said, oh, Rachel, you should take a look at this implied nowhere absence in folklore studies. And I thought, oh my goodness, that sounds great. We need to talk about what's absence in folklore studies. So how did you come up with this theme? I think we all realized we were dealing with things that were in our our graduate work that,
3: that sort of overlapped um, and that weren't. And I think, I, you know, Todd says he talks about his piece a little bit in the book. I also talk about mine a little bit in the book um, that were not sort of within the mainstream of folklore research in one way or another. They were all things that we found ourselves having to do a lot of explaining about, or um, weren't, weren't sort of the classic, yeah, they weren't the the classic folklorist folk narrative um, in terms of our our research, our topics of research. uh, And, and that, that, that really, we were all sort of probing these areas of absence. And I think that's a little bit where it originated? I don't know. Todd, Shelley, you may have different.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, whenever when we looked at, at what we were writing about together as a whole, I think the first thing we noticed were ghosts, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I noticed that, but I think we all noticed that this idea of the ghostly, um, it, both literal and figurative, because there are literal ghosts in some of the things that we write about. Uh was something that was kind of tying our, our chapters together. And as we as we kept working and we kept thinking and we kept writing, we realized that it wasn't just ghost, but it was the absence of a thing and also the presence of the thing. And I, and I just think that we noticed that there was this trend all the way through our work of things that are there and not there. And I think it just kind of grew organically from the work that we were doing which is interesting since it's absence. <laughs> I,
0: I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is too convenient, but I mean, like listening to to, to but what both Willie and Shola said, like I'm thinking about the fact that, that you could easily describe our presence at AFS. Um, like, like when we're presenting our papers that we were both uh, there and not there, right. Like that we would always end up on the same panels and things like that. And that uh, um, I think we all wanted um, a, a larger audience, um, and and to have our ideas taken more seriously, and and so the book is kind of a manifestation of just like like as everybody has already said, like like the work that we've been doing um, throughout our careers and our, and our our the presentations we've been doing at the American Folklore Society meetings.
1: So when you say you were both there and not there at the American Folklore Society, do you mean that your panels didn't tend to be very well attended? Yeah. <laughs> Join the club. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about what you've stated in the introduction and set out the premise further, or if you'd rather go straight to the main chapters. It's up to you. Um, one
3: thing I I would add in not it wasn't I think it was both because I think we do say this in the introduction. There is also the issue of folklore in the larger academy and that it's it's been sort of this contested space for a long time. Folklorists have spent a lot of time hand-wringing about it. Um, And and so in a little... To a certain degree, as folklorists feel about the larger academy, we felt a little bit about folklore. And I think that that sort of both desire to sort of champion our subjects um, and champion folklore itself uh, also lay a little bit underneath this whole project.
2: And one of the things that we say in the introduction is that we link the absences in folklore to the absences of folklore. Um, and I, and I think that that's like the absence of folklore in the larger academic community. Um, the fact that people will write about urban legends and then not read or cite a single folklorist, um, yeah, that we saw ourselves also fighting some of those same battles in in the field itself, and this book is a way to we were hoping a way to show the importance and vitality of folklore in the larger academic community. That hey, people should people should look at us, but also thinking about how maybe some of our own own. We call them the the unarticulated boundaries of the field um, contribute in some way to that that kind of larger absence.
1: Right. So the book is comprised of six main chapters, and then there are a number of interstitial shorter chapters which come under the heading of Fraud, Quacks and Dilettantes. So first of all, we're going to go through the six main chapters. And then if there's time, we'll take a look maybe at one or two of the Fraud, Quacks and Dilettantes chapters. So, Willow, I think the first chapter is yours. It's called "Our Lady of Authenticity: Folklore Articles of Faith." What are you talking about here? Um, so, this
3: actually, and and I I tell this story a bit in the chapter. Um, it came out of my own sort of you know I'd, I'd graduated, um, job market was terrible. <laughs> uh, I still wanted to be a folklorist, but I wasn't sure if I fit as a folklorist anymore, um, and. Some of that came from my doctoral research. Um, and w- what I realized as I was sort of thinking through it, and I found myself presenting that the kernel of this chapter actually came from a, a paper I gave at AFS when it was in New Orleans. And um, I wrote it a little bit tongue in cheek as, you know, here we are. We have these keywords and, the, and, you know, there's the the eight keywords of expressive culture that came out at Burt um edited volume. And then I think it was in the nineties that that came out and it was sort of be- playing this idea of what are our keywords. And it, it occurred to me that they, they become sort of etched in stone. Um, and, and I can remember being at, there was, I think the AFS before that, where I was at a panel and someone at the panel said, oh, are we still talking about authenticity in this sort of petulant kind of way? Like, we don't have to talk about this anymore. And I thought, we, why? Why don't we have to talk about this anymore? Um, and to sort of change the lens a little bit, to shift sort of the, the position from which I was looking at um, the field from one of these are sort of the accepted things that we all agree to. You know, we all agree that 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 sort of scientific theory almost that genre and the vernacular and authenticity and all of those in group and um, and I was sort of watching the explosion of folk group uh, because of the internet and what what was that how that was sort of pushing at and rending that idea of group um, so what about our other keywords what about our other sort of things that we've taken for granted and are they really fact or are they just something that we've agreed to believe in? And then what happens if we don't believe in them anymore? Um, or if, you know, sort of through our reading, we have this, if you if you think about something as belief, then it opens it up for doubt. Um, and I think I was sort of playing with that idea, particularly, particularly in terms of authenticity and then added the other two um, to sort of think about what are some other examples of ones that I still do take for granted and, and genre, of course, is one of them. I, I, still, t- I still totally take genre for granted um, that it's uh, just not something to really, really push on the limits of. And even though I stand, find myself standing in class in front of students saying, you know, things can be in multiple genres and it's, it's a fluid term, um, but to sort of play with that idea a little bit about what happens when we stop accepting our our notions of what is in this rigid way and in, in, and received knowledge and start sort of pushing beyond that.
1: The other term you've lighted upon is vernacular and actually somewhere in the chapter you say that the first version of this chapter was a farewell to folklore because and I'm quoting you now I had lost faith in authenticity rarely thought about genre except as somewhat archaic and found the vernacular meaningless and then this becomes a kind of musing on how you came to terms with these terms in a way so perhaps you could give us an example of how you dealt with one of these terms I think um so
3: I think the the idea of genre, I think, sums it up, and I talked about that one a little already. In that, it just you know, it became sort of an organizing force in sort of how do you set up an intro class. <laughs> um, and I still find myself sort of playing with ideas of genre a little bit, but it's it's authenticity was the big one for me in terms of being a it, being a moment of crisis and um, being that moment that sort of almost drove me out of the field. Um, the vernacular also kind of pushed at this idea of. Um, you know, what counts? What counts as vernacular and what doesn't? And that there is this, because of the kind of theories that we grew up in the field with, if you will, and performance theory was very big at MU um, when we were there, that, but what if there's not ever A breakthrough into performance? What if the vernacular is something that's happening all the time and all around us and with everyone? Um, And in these, and I I think I get into this in one of the the interstitial of the small ways, the small things, folklore of small things, interstitial, um, that like the way you make coffee in the morning is often extremely ritualized, but it's just you making coffee. Um, And so it's not something we document as folklore. And so that's where I sort of ended up throwing out the idea of the vernacular. Um, authenticity became really difficult for me when, during my, my dissertation, because I was working with uh, objects that were made out of felt, which is a traditional textile in Kyrgyzstan. And they were made in Kyrgyzstan by women who w- considered themselves entrepreneurs and really part of the global marketplace. Um, very strong, sort of powerful uh, business women. And they were making these things out of felt that were being sold in the United States as traditional and authentic objects of from Kyrgyzstan, but they were Christmas tree ornaments. And they don't celebrate Christmas in Kyrgyzstan. It's a predominantly Muslim country. And so there was this complete disconnect between wh- what sort of the word authentic meant to the women in Kyrgyzstan, and what the word "authentic" meant to the buyers in the United States, and I found it increasingly difficult in folklore among folklorists to sort of say yes, but what if what if authenticity doesn't mean the same thing in the group you're talking to as it does to the people who, who are receiving it, to the audience, um, and sort of how do we? You know, and it was it was that moment and the the place I found the most discussions of that was actually in folk music, predominantly ballad singing from Britain, um, where people were learning ballads out of, you know, the child ballad books (laughs) and then then going and singing them Um, and sort of, you know, what what counts and why.
1: You end the chapter with this anecdote about a woman who bought an African drum from the Santa Fe International Folk Art Market. Can you just briefly tell us about that? Because it's very illustrative. Sure. Um,
3: So I actually adore this moment. Um, So I was on the bus. I've been doing field work at the Santa Fe Folk Art Market. There is a bunch of the Kyrgyz women I was studying were were presenting there. Um, And I was there's a bus that runs between the parking, which is all in downtown Santa Fe, up the hill, up Museum Hill to where the market takes place. Because there's not very much parking up there. And the market takes over the parking lot. Um, And I was it was the end of the day. Uh, We were on the last bus back. And it was packed and everybody was, you know, lots of happy shoppers um, with their bags full of things. And there was this woman who was, you know, a white American, probably in her 50s. Um, and she had bought this African drum and she was was clearly pleased with it. And everybody was sort of in a festival mood. So people, strangers were talking to each other about what they bought and the day they'd had and who they'd talked to and so on. And someone asked her. um, you know, oh, that's, I see you got this drum. And she said, yes. And you're like, oh, that's really great. I bet it has a great sound. And she sort of demurred and hemmed and hawed a little bit. And um, the they, there was another, there were sort of two people involved in the conversation beside the woman. And um, the other person sort of jumped in and was like, oh, I bet it sounds great. You know, do you mind if I play it? And proceeds to play the drum on the bus. <laughs> and They're all, you know, admiring, you know, what are you going to do with this drum? Isn't this great? And finally, she sort of, mutters, well, I'm going to make it into a coffee table. And there was sort of this moment of shocked silence among the, the people who were talking to her. And, and then they were like, well, but one of them finally said, well, it's a shame for a drum like that not to be played. You know, don't, don't you think the, the, the man who made it would want it to be played? And she said, but I can't play drums. I just want it for a coffee table. <laughs> and, and it really challenged my sort of worldview of, you know, here's this object that's made for one thing, um, but, you know, the the man who made it is probably like the Kyrgyz women that I interviewed, happy someone's buying his drum. Like, that's probably the most important thing to him. And sh- the woman who bought it may be operating on a value system that I know nothing about that doesn't necessarily put authenticity And authentic, authentic use as important in her value system. So, then, what does that mean for, in in sort of larger terms, for folklorists? You know, we sort of have this this need to sort of present the real. Um, But what if the real isn't what we think it is? So I think that was, uh, it was, it was a real moment of truth for for me listening to that conversation.
1: Yes. And it's an excellent way to end that chapter. So now I think we'll move on to the next chapter, which is by you, Todd, and it's called misanthropalore, which I love that name. Did I say that correctly? Misanthropalore?
0: You can say it however you want. Really. Uh, um, Misanthropalore is how I've always said it. Um, but it's just, it's, it's supposed to be, a you know, a provocative name uh, in that, like, I'm, I'm talking about myself in the chapter, right, in a lot of ways. And I don't want to think I'm a misanthrope, but maybe I am uh, a little bit um, or a lot. I have no idea. And, um, but really what it's about is, like, how do cynical people who resist group identity nevertheless generate group identity right and like i said it was a, it was in a lot of ways an attempt to to locate myself in the field of folklore just because it's a truism within the field right like if you everyone who's taught introductory folklore you know like we say everybody has folklore and uh when i was introduced to the field like i was like but do i um and it was just kind of hard to find at first and so this was like kind of a a, a bladed attempt to do that um, because I do, I resist group identity and I, and, and I think that's largely a product of, of being a part of, of Western cultural traditions and even more specifically, um, you know, cultural traditions in the United States, which so venerate individuality, individualism, um, you know, that you're supposed to stand out. You're supposed to be different. You're supposed to stand apart from the crowd. Who, who's, who, um, oh God, uh, what is it? Uh, Whosoever would be a man would be a nonconformist. I hope I got that right. Uh, uh, like this idea that, you know, y- you must be different. And so that's, that's like kind of where it comes from. So it's like misanthropal it's misanthropes, but, but in a general sense, it's not quite as like hatred hating is that it's more just uh, a slightly cynical approach to other people
1: right and they're separating out this kind of distinguishing oneself as not that mm-hmm. not like that group not like these people although as you say if you're distinguishing yourself against the group you're still using group to form your own identity
0: Absolutely. Right. There's the, the um, I don't know if I talk about it in the chapter, but there's this, this Zen parable that has always stuck with me about, um, or uh, this question of like, what do a starving person and a gourmet have in common? And it's that they're both obsessed with where their next meal is coming from. Uh, and I think the same holds true for people who are, you know, fully committed to group identity and people who are resistant to group identity. They're both defining themselves against the same notion right like it, it like it's both there so even if you are resisting group identity you're still very much a part of the group or uh you're in, you're in the network even if you resist that group identity you know right which again group it's this fundamental uh it's this sacred term within the field um and and i'm trying to think about the absences around them within
1: side. this chapter you've based a lot of your discussion around the comics of daniel close Klaus? Daniel Klaus. Klaus Daniel Klaus, yeah. can you explain who he is to people who aren 't familiar with his work and what his work is about
0: uh, 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 misanthropy I mean uh, I, I mean he would get mad if I said that, um, but, but is his comics are just full of these, these characters who are just um, you know, uh, beyond cynical towards other people? I mean they, they really dislike uh, everything that they encounter. Um, and it's uh, like, he's most famous for Ghost World. It's probably his most famous work uh, with Enid Coleslaw is the protagonist of that. Um, and just like this, this poster person for, for um, young misanthropes um, that, that resonates with so many people, right? Like you go on Etsy and that you can get Enid Col- Coleslaw anything you want uh, because there are people who identify with this person so deeply, yet this person is doesn't want to identify with anybody, right? Like it's this, this curious paradox, but nevertheless, there's a group identity that that is generated from that. But, but the, the um, you know, this, this being differential, this differential identity, this, this um, misanthropy um, is, is throughout Klaus's work. But the, but the central comic that I I really work with is the one is like how to formulate an opinion. And he says, find somebody you don't like and then think the opposite of them. Right. And uh, I think this is something that, that, I know I've done, right, Uh, uh, on some level. And um, uh, I like the idea of thinking that there is, like as, as negative as that sounds, that there is something generative there.
1: You say something about the shared isolation, generating an affinity with other people who are in this isolated state because they're not able to connect to other people. This is moving on a little bit from Enid Coleslaw and going into another comic, which I think is called Wilson where the protagonist is attempting to connect with others, but fails. There's an example of him saying, oh, so tell me all about yourself. And this person starts telling him about themselves. And he's like, oh, my God, just stop talking or something like that. (laughs) I think I probably butchered that there. But you're saying at the end that people who don't fit in can at least relate to other people who don't fit in. Yeah, there's
0: um, uh, it's. um it's, uh, oh, diasporic intimacy, right? That's the term that I, that I stole, uh, um, to describe this stuff. But really for me, just like, um, in terms of like where I kind of first started thinking about this stuff is from, um, Sarah Orne Jewett's Country, of The Pointed Furs, which is this, this wonderful book. Um, and there's a character in there who, um, lived and died on her own island, right? And, um, the island becomes a, a something of a tourist attraction that people will go by and they'll be like, that's where the outcasted woman lived. And the narrator of the novel is just like, yeah, there's my fellow hermit, right? Like the the, the brotherhood or, or, or in this case, the sisterhood of hermits, right? Like the, that we have this certain kind of connection, which always struck me as so curious, so weird. Um, this idea that you could generate shared identity through absence, through disconnection. But I think the more I think about this stuff, and I've been thinking about this actually quite a bit, even since uh, uh, since uh, the book came out. Um, you know, it just feels uh, really resonant with our current cultural moment, where I, I you know, I don't want to speak for everybody, um, but I know myself. I feel incredibly disconnected uh, from my 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 culture, from my group, from from my community, from my neighborhood, right? Um, and Nevertheless, I still have to, in order to get through the day, I have to generate some kind of social identity or some kind of sense of inclusion, and I will do it imaginatively, right, rather than, than with people specifically, but bringing it back to the kind of central conceit of the book, like, where do we talk about that kind of stuff in the field? Like, where do we talk about this, this idea of, of in, um, group identity through the absence of group, right? And I'm just trying to provide a new vocabulary for that, like trying to provide a, this missing vocabulary.
1: In the next chapter, which is by Shelley Ingram, we come to Footprints of Ghosts, fictional folklorists in the work of Gloria Naylor, Lee Smith, Randall Keenan and Colson Whitehead. Whereas Todd's chapter was based around the comics of Daniel Clowes, you have based a chapter on the works of four writers.
2: I'm really interested in, I, I like to read books about the Academy. So, you know, I, I don't mind, I I always, I read, I don't always like, but I read these books that involve a professor as the protagonist, you know, books about the Academy. And one of the things that I, I cause sometimes were, were awful and it represent, it, <laughs> and that's represented in these, in this kind of cottage industry of of academic fiction. Um, But one of the things I noticed is that folklorists, academic folklorists, aren't in those books. That's not, we do not show up in in those books. Um, Instead, we have academic folklorists, or folklorists somehow connected to a university, show up in very different kinds of books. So one of the things that uh, I've always been interested in is the representation of the folklorist in fiction. So I, I kind of based a graduate seminar around that. And I said, hey, let's let's look at these ways in which we are um, in which we're depicted. So how how do fiction writers kind of take the folklorist and use that figure for some reason? So these four uh, works are are really interesting and interesting and how much, and how similar they are. So, you know, these, so in uh, Mama Day, I, I do Gloria Naylor's Mama Day, um, Lee Smith's Oral History, Randall Keenan's long short story, Let the Dead Bury Their Dead, which is the which is the title story from his collection of, of short fiction. And then Colson Whitehead's John Henry Days. Um, and, and I was looking at these these works thinking, you know, how do they speak to each other? What do they tell us about how fiction writers think about folklorists? Uh, and so I noticed some things that these texts kind of had in common that were really intriguing. Um, first and foremost, perhaps, is that the folklorist is 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 very rarely right, that the folklorist is is often an outsider. Um, who is outside of the community, who comes in and, and who thinks that they understand what the community is when in fact they, they are missing um, a lot of what's going on. And, uh, and, and the other thing that, I mean, Whiteheads uh, is, a little, is a little different, but the other thing that I noticed is that all four of these works are really interested in talking about the text so both so texts both in the novel themselves in in the work themselves but also the text um, as we read it so as it's received so so this you know thinking and exploring textuality and how we take a story and put it in a text and then how that text gets received by other people um, and then the last thing another thing that I noticed after I'd started working on this, it kind of came out again, at, as I was looking at these different works of fiction, um, was that they all involve ghosts. So both both actual ghosts that haunt people in places, and also the ghostly as, as again, as metaphor. So I, I started thinking, what are these connections then between the folklorist, the text, and the ghostly? And that's what this chapter um, really tries to work work through and work out
1: Can you give us an example of how one of the folklorists in this literature is represented?
2: Uh, sure so so let's think about um, I'm gonna talk about about the character in um, let the dead bury their dead because that's a that's a pretty complicated structure that Randall Keenan has for this for this story so there's um, the folklorist there's a folklorist who, Finds after the death of an oral historian his papers. And the folklorist takes the papers. And presents them as, as the found work of, of I think it's the Reverend Malachi Green. Uh, um, I don't have the book right, right there with me. Um, and he says, like, here is the work of an oral historian who went into this town of Thames Creek, which is the fictional town that Keenan sets most of his work, in, uh, most of his his fiction in. Um, and it's the story, it's an oral history that's, that's a recorded dialogue between two characters about the founding of, of Thames Creek, uh, of the town. So you have the, the folk, quote unquote, the folk who are telling the story. You have the oral historian who collected their story, and then you have the folklorist who presents it. Um, and one of the things that's interesting about the folklorist is is so Randall Keenan does a lot of has a lot of metafictional self-conscious moves is that uh, the the folklorist has the same initials as Randall Keenan does and so he's Reginald Kane and anytime you see a note by the folklorist it, it's signed with the initials RK right which are Randall Keenan's um, initials and one of the things that the folklorist does the one who's collating the text is that he um, he writes a lot of footnotes and he talks about cutting parts of the oral history that he found repetitive. And then he questions the oral historian who he says, I'm not sure why he did the way this, the way he did this thing. So you have the controlling kind of voice of the folklorist. um, But then it's so obvious that the oral historian, um, his voice is still there, even, even though he's, Uh, He's not a character in the text. And then you have you have the voice of of the characters themselves who are talking about the history of the town. And and so you really see the folklorist as someone who um, who interjects with these. Really, with these footnotes that are that are that are really outside the main of the story, and sometimes the footnotes actually push the text of the oral history off the page. So you have a page, and you have three text, three lines of of the main text, and then you have the rest of the page are, are footnotes. So you get to see how the folklorist is kind of involved in in this story. And he and he's uh, unlike the way Naylor and Smith present their folklorists to don't underst- who don't understand at all what's going on. You see with, with Keenan's folklorist, um, the way that he's really trying to understand a, a worldview that's kind of outside of, of his domain. And he falls back on these, on these kind of academic language of footnotes. But then those footnotes are also really interesting and actually very important because they tell all kinds of contextual history.
1: One of the things you say towards the end of the chapter is the characters as depicted, even this one, do not indicate the actual angst that actual folklorists feel with regard to the matter of representation?
2: I think that it is important to to understand that these writers are, you know, they are not actually necessarily talking about us because, you know, Naylor's and Smith's version of a folklorist is just everything that we don't want to be. Um, but it is still important to think about how how these writers use this figure of a folklore as as more metaphorical for thinking about the way that we tell stories and thinking about the way that we record history. And so there's something about the folklorist that allows, allows the writers to do that. And I think in really interesting ways, and that we should just, maybe one day I'll write the, I think I say this in the chapter, one day I'll write a book about the ways that these fictional representations, you know, get what we do wrong. But I think the first step is that we have to Think about what they get right. Um, And then once we do that, then we can move on to say, well, you know, look, we are actually doing, many of us are doing the things they ask us to, but we need to listen. Like we need to listen to what they're saying.
1: Right, right. Okay, so chapter four, we're back to Willow. This is your chapter called "A Folkloristics of Death, Absence Sustainability and Ghosts in the film, Welcome to Pine Point. So I guess I'm going to start by asking you to tell us, what is this film, Welcome to Pine Point? It's an odd little film and uh,
3: it's it's not it's not a film in the traditional sense. So it's a, a interactive web-based film. Um, so you go to the website and I, I, it's something like welcome to pinepoint.ca. It was um, made in Canada. And you can kind of lead yourself through the film. So, you know, you spend as much time as you want on each page. There's um, hyperlinks. It, they take you to other pages Uh, you can go backwards and forwards Um, so it's sort of an experimental design in and of itself and um, it's about a town the town of Pine Point that was built by a mining company um, outside of like a couple hours outside of Yellowknife and when the mine closed the town closed there was no point for it to be there anymore. There was no town. There was no industry without the mine. Um, and the mine owned everything. So it literally was this company town in sort of this old sense that I don't know that we are aware still exists in the world. Uh, and yet, obviously, it does. And the, the person, the guy who, the two men who did the film, the filmmakers, um One of them had played hockey against this, the team from Pine Point when he was a kid and was sort of thinking about, you know, ideas about home and, um, really playing with an idea of scrapbooking, which is where the format came from, that sort of textural format, um, and family albums and sort of uh, albums of home and got curious as to whether or not the town was still there. So he started Googling it, um. it's not. It was the mine closed. They folded up the town. They took all the houses away. Everyone moved away. Um, there is still sort of the remnants. So there's the trace upon the land of the mine itself and and some of the buildings. Um, but it really was this sort of town that only existed for a generation, uh, and then everybody left and he got really curious about what this meant in terms of home and in terms of memory. And, you know, what happens, you know, and, and this is sort of his central question, but also my central question. Um, what happens when the home you remember is no longer there? Can, can you go home again? Um, is that something that can even happen? And what he ended up finding and that I, the, the idea, the sort of central idea that I end up playing around with um, is this idea of ghosts and and that sometimes something is more useful in memory than it is in real life. That you know that that there is no dissonance. You know, one of the things that the the filmmaker talks about is he went back to his childhood home um, at one point, and it was you know new people had moved in, they, they painted it a different color, they had made an addition. I don't know, there's there's all these changes, um, but the people of Pine Point don't have that opportunity for them. Their home only exists in memory and they, they have this sort of extremely active online community. Um, They have reunions every year, or at least they, they were when I wrote the book. I don't know if they still are. (laughs) Um, They, it almost seems to be less troubling. There's not that dissonance. There's not that sort of, um, uncanniness that we get when we visit a childhood home that's changed, because they can't. There's no, there is no home there anymore, um, and so it can be this kind of perfect idyllic place to have come from. Um, it can be. It becomes the stories about it rather than the place itself, um, and I tied that with Derrida's idea about hauntology and and this sort of. The notion of a ghost that's that's more more useful to us psychologically or sort of culturally um, as something that was rather than something that is, and and that was sort of the the idea I was playing around with. The film centers on five people, I think, in particular. One of them, there's a pair of brothers who there they had a third brother that died in the town. Um, And so the entire town has kind of become a memorial to their brother and their memories have sort of become a memorial to their brother. Um, One of the women who is, uh, they sort of classify her as sort of this golden girl, you know, perfect high school sweetheart kind of character. Um, She moves away to the, I think to Vancouver or somewhere, some big city on the west coast of Canada. and. It's, she talks about it being this sort of, you know, almost snow globe-like, like that it's, it can be the place that she, that was perfect, but that she left, but she's not wrong for having left it. There's no need to go back. There's no desire to go back and sort of reclaim some other glory. She can, she can move on with her life because it's not there anymore. Um, Which is almost the direct opposite to the, to the man that uh, ends up being sort of the, in some ways sort of the focus of the film he who maintains the website for the community um helps host the the reunion every year um he had been sort of the and and says he was sort of the the bad boy and the bully when he was in high school there um went to go work on the mine you know very sort of hard physical labor ends up developing um, debilitating muscular sclerosis i think. Um, and is wheelchair bound, and this is now his his interaction with the world. Now is in t- almost not entirely, but sort of a, it's a big part of his interaction of the with the world is through this website with the former residents. Um, so for him, he's kind of living in these memories of what he could do, who he was, um, and. You know, have, has gone, has transformed from being this sort of divisive figure um, when he lived in the town itself to now becoming the person who brings everyone together. And so, for each of them, it sort of is serving some kind of purpose that it couldn't serve if the town still was there. You know, a lot of the the sort of recent discussion going back to sort of the 1970s there's been a lot of discussion in folklore circles about preservation um conservation cultural sustainability um and you know documenting even going back you know to the the roots of the the origins of the field back in the 1800s where there was all this salvage ethnography we have to you know document things before we before they're gone um and the whole narrative, this driving narrative that that fed folkloristics for so long, um, even as we've tried to move away from that, we still hear it. And yet, I wonder sometimes, you know, maybe maybe it's best if we. If it dies, like maybe maybe it's more useful that way as as
1: this ghost entity. That's a fascinating idea. You actually say that you're querying the term folk life because it excludes the possibility of studying death. I'm wondering about folk afterlife or something like that. Right, I like that. Like folk afterlife. <laughs> Folklore. Right <laughs> now, we're going to move on to Shelley, and we come back to literature. And this chapter five is called "White Folks: Literature's Uncanny, Unhomely Folklore of Whiteness."
2: I think this chapter came from uh, I I I'm mostly i I'm a lit person, and I I teach in an English department, and I teach literature classes. And my primary interest has always been, uh, for the most part, has been folklore and, and literature. And when I was kind of first starting out, I was I was noticing that 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 we tended to pick a specific type of text when we wanted to talk about folklore and and lit. Um, and then that specific type of, of text really wanted to see folklore as something that re- that fit into our kind of pre-established paradigm. Um, and one of the things that we didn't really talk about is the folklore of whiteness, not the folklore of white people, um, but the folklore of, of whiteness as as a thing that that was kind of a blind spot in the study of folklore. And lit. I think that's changing now, um, but it's only been within the last few years, I think, that we've that we've really started tackling this this idea um, that that there is that there is uh, we can talk about folklore and literature over a wide range of texts, even if they don't, even if they don't at first um, kind of jump out at, at us as a text that quote, unquote has a lot of folklore in it. Uh, so what I was interested in, in this chapter was to look at these two novels that, and I think it started from, I, I assigned a cl- uh, I assigned the Eudora Walti's novel Delta Wedding in a, in a class that I taught at Missouri um, on race, class, and southern and southern fiction. And when when we our first day of discussing this novel, I had a student raise her hand and say, "How is this really about race? It's white people." Um, and then I and I thought, well, um, let's talk about that. Let's talk about why you think whiteness is not something um that we need to talk about when we talk about race and also why did you ignore all of the black characters that are actually in the novel and a few years later i was actually talking about this novel i was actually giving um uh, yeah, a, a public talk. And I had someone in the audience raise his hand and said, you know, how is this book about folklore? There aren't any folk. In it. <laughs> so I started thinking about, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And so there, I started thinking about this connection between, um, you know, my student raising her hand and said, you know, this is only white people in and then my other, the other pers- audience member raising his hand and said there aren't any folk in it. Um, so I, I, you know, I wanted to really get at the folklore of of whiteness because I think, as I say in the in the chapter, the idea that whiteness is absent is actually a pretty dangerous idea, and the idea that whiteness somehow is exempt from our folkloric concerns is also a pretty dangerous idea. So, so this chapter looks at how these two novel, how two novels. So it's Delta Wedding and then Russell Banks, um, his his novel Affliction. How these two books actually engage in whiteness directly, really, uh, within the paradigm of, of folk group construction. So it's how is whiteness a uh, part of the way that people in these books construct group and construct group identity.
1: Just before you go on, you said at the beginning that this is not about the folklore of white people, it's about the folklore of whiteness. Can you explain how you're distinguishing that?
2: well it's because i'm really look at looking specifically at how whiteness itself is is kind of a a folk identity you see a lot there we have plenty of books that are about the folklore of of people who are white but that a lot of that discussion doesn't actually directly address their whiteness so so you see them talking about other things so kind of regional or or national identity or maybe gender identity the way that that people, you know, women make folklore and the way that people in Mississippi make folklore um, and the way that people in a small community in, in, in um, I don't know, Wyoming make folklore and that the, the subjects of, of a lot of these studies um, and a lot of these kind of looking at the way we, looking at folklore, it doesn't deal directly, doesn't address directly head on their, uh, the idea of whiteness in the way that other, other works that say talk about you know, a, a Delta community made up of, of primar- primarily people of color always talk about race. So it always talks about their race in a way that that works. About people who happen to be white don't always talk about race. And that that was one. That was really what I meant. Can
1: you give us an example from one of these novels about how whiteness manifests?
2: Oh, it manifests in many. <laughs> they manifest in many ways. Um, there, there's, the, you know, kind of one of the things I say is, in in affliction kind of whiteness abounds, even the word itself is everywhere. There's snow. Uh, there's, the narrator talks about his community of white colonial homes. So you have whiteness as a color that's very much connected to, to whiteness as, as, as race. And Russell Banks is a writer who, who actually does call attention to whiteness, um, in a lot of his fiction, much of his fiction, he's he's very concerned with it. And in his other, in a lot of his other novels, uh, his the whiteness that he talks about is put in direct contrast to to blackness. I mean, that's that's something that he really that he really looks at. And, and I'm talking about kind of a color scheme here. So white and black. And so he has characters who are white, who are um, defining themselves with and against characters uh, um, who are not white. So people of color in, in the fiction, but in affliction, whiteness is everywhere. So what's really interesting in this novel is the way that he, that he tries to find some other way of being by which to construct um uh, uh, to, to construct his main, his main character. Uh, and so you have all these other ways in which the narrator and the, and the, the protagonist, they're not the same, are, are kind of trying to, trying to find an identity and a, and a lot of ways of racial identity in a town where it's all in a place where it's all white people. <laughs> um, in Delta Wedding, you see it. Yeah. In Delta Wedding, you see it uh, it's really interesting. so one of the one of the characters, Laura, she's a young, I think she's nine in the book, and she's trying to figure out whether or not to live with with the family at Shell mound, which is the the um the place in Mississippi, or to go back with her father who lives in the in the city and and she can't decide what she wants to do. and she's trying to figure out her identity. And her identity comes when she kind of, steals it she doesn't really steal she looks into the the bag of of an african-american character in the novel so she looks into that bag she sees herself not part of that not part of that i ident- like not part of that that um aunt studney's uh that's the name of the african-american character she can't really see herself in aunt studney's bag so this is a by recognizing this the other um in the novel, she sees she kind of comes to an identity of herself as white, and that's you know that's problematic, and that's something that we need to think about. Um, that's something we need to work through. And and this people who study and those of us who study folklore and lit, really, I, it's really interesting to look at these moments where folk culture is othered, and um, and folk culture is racially designated as not white, and whiteness is allowed to have no folk culture. And that's really what I'm looking at in these in these novels.
1: The final main chapter is called "Folklore in Vacuo" and other disciplinary predicaments. And we're back with you, Todd.
0: I was just trying to think of like when it when I first wrote it, and I don't know, but I, I, I like thinking about it now and rereading it. Like I feel like it's just kind of like a tantrum uh, that I that I threw with a frustration with the field, and I mean like a positive one. Like I, I don't regret it or anything. It's uh, it grows out of. Um, so many of the things that we've already talked about, right? Like, um, like Shelly was mentioning earlier about the idea that, that there is this invisibility of our discipline, right? That, that folklorists much lament um, and we just kind of sit around kicking rocks like, like nobody takes us seriously, no, no, nobody pays attention to us. But when I started studying folklore, one of the things I noticed is that people were like really into it, right? That they would like, when I would tell just, just people outside of the academy, you know, I'm, I'm studying folklore. They would go, Oh my God. Right. And then they would start telling me, you know, all the, all the, all the, all the things that, that irritate folklorists after a while, like that, you know, like, Oh, you must know about urban legends. You must know about fairy tales and and, and so on and so forth where we're like, well, actually it's much more sophisticated than that. But what, what I did, I don't understand. I I didn't know how to reconcile that disciplinary invisibility with the the incredible interest that people have in our field and so i just kind of tried to write through that because i think on some level our invisibility is a product of our own um isolation right that that, that we have iso- we have self isolated uh, and I think it largely comes out of the fact that that we don't think people take us seriously, so we like adopt a scientific kind of prose in order to make our scene self seem like we're wearing like white coats and in a laboratory studying the folk, you know, and folkloristics and all that, um, which is great and has produced some, some really interesting things. But at the same time, like we can't complain if, if a larger audience isn't paying attention when when we're deliberately alienating people in the way that we write about this. And so the chapter is, in a lot of ways, just my call for saying, like, let's write in a more accessible, more interesting, more entertaining way. Um, And maybe then people will start giving us the attention that we
1: want. This is coming out of your background where you started off as a creative nonfiction writer at Missouri.
0: Right. Actually, uh, uh um my master's degree is from the University of Nebraska at Omaha where I where I currently teach. Uh and um I did a lot of work in creative nonfiction there and and I owe a great deal to the professors in that program for helping me appreciate that when you sit down to write something, like you don't have to write it in a in a it doesn't have to be an article, right? It doesn't have to be a thesis-driven article in the traditional sense that you can find a format, um, that is appropriate to the idea that you're expressing. And, and even probably more importantly, like you can think about a broader audience and you can find an, uh, a, a format that's appropriate to a broader audience. And then when I got to Missouri and, and, and the creative nonfiction thing kind of fell apart and I started reading folklore stuff, I just got really depressed, right? Because it was, it was a drag. It was, a I, I, it was interesting conceptually intellectually but it was a drag to get through because it was this lifeless bloodless um academic prose uh and so i wanted to i wanted to to see if i could find a way for the kind of writing i was accustomed to to fit within the discipline um and so absolutely it, it, it's it's uh, i'm i'm, I'm My my experiences with with creative nonfiction are indispensable to this chapter, and also to everything I've ever written about folklore.
1: I'm curious: do you write outside of the academy in a creative nonfictiony manner about folklore?
0: Yes, um, I'm I'm trying, and I think actually, I I mean, think absolutely. I think everything that we've written in here does that in one way or another. I mean, paying attention uh uh to what well, listening to to um everybody talk like i'm realizing how autobiographical all of these chapters are in one way or another and how we're all engaging with our own experiences and i do think there is an accessibility to the prose that there is an engagement um that is absent in a lot of writing about folklore but more specifically, it's those frauds, quacks, and dilettantes, those interstitials, I think, that really engage with a popular audience and really try and embody the things that, that I'm talking about in folklore and vacuo that are trying to say, you know, like, here's something really interesting. Here's something that you can read really quickly and is going to be thought-provoking and doesn't necessarily provide a thesis, right? Doesn't necessarily provide a specific answer, but rather indulges curiosity, which is which is. Perfectly legitimate, and and much of the feel, much of the popular writing about folklore from the past, people like Ben Botkin, that's what they did, right? They didn't try and tell people what to think. They they encourage people to think, and I and I, I hope that's what we accomplished in those interstitial chapters.
1: Which leads perfectly on to my asking you about those interstitial chapters. Just briefly, if you could explain what the idea is behind them and perhaps give one or two examples. And I'm throwing this out to the floor so whoever speaks first can run with it.
0: Uh, I'll just keep talking. if Because um, I think they were Shelley's idea. I think Shelley initially was like, we should do this, right? And it was like, yeah, we should do that. That's really, really cool. Uh, and then everybody just kind of came up with their own little things that they're like, I wish people talked about this more or, 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 um, maybe this will generate some interesting discussion. And it was just, everybody was kind of on their own, um, in order to come up with the unappreciated aspects of, of folklore or the, the under or, or the just ignored invisible aspects of folklore. And so for me, I immediately wanted to do something on Roger Welsh. Um, just because he's been a great inspiration to me
1: and he is
0: oh he is uh he is a um folklorist uh based in nebraska uh he's a nebraska folklorist i just have to say it. um and he worked in the academy for a long time he was a tenured professor at the university of nebraska down in lincoln um and then uh charles Caralt uh he got drunk with charles Caralt and charles corralt's like you're a funny guy like why don't you Come do a, a, a show with me, and Charles Crawl was a, a the host of CBS Sunday Mornings. Right, it was a it was a it was a long running television show that was like it, political issues were addressed on it, but it was also just kind of general interest. Right, like um, America woke up on Sunday mornings to Charles Crawl Sunday mornings, and Charles Crawl invited Roger Welch to do um, short little segments on the show called Postcards from Nebraska, where Roger would just discuss local culture. In his, in his, in his region. And, um, they were not, again, thesis driven in any sense whatsoever. They were meant to be engaging. They were meant to be eye opening and to, to indulge curiosity. Um, and he became, for a time at least, the most famous folklorist in America. And I, I, don't think we in the Academy should forget him, right. Or forget his contributions. And and so I, I wanted to write something about like his broad approach to folklore, both the subject, but also the discipline. Um, and also, uh, it is from him that, uh, we got the name frauds, quacks and dilettantes because he said something to us about that, where he's just like, I've always thought the, the, the field of folklore was a fantastic refuge for frauds, quacks and dilettantes. And I, and I, I, we, it was just so, it was such a a irreverent, um, assessment of the field. Right. And that, for a field that is like, as Willow talked about, like, you know, we have these articles of faith that there are, there is a, there is, um, um, a theology to the field of folklore for him to 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 provide this irreverent assessment of it, just I think really resonated with all of us and and i think uh provides certain inspiration for all those chapters
3: i think just to build off of what Todd said as well, I think this is the the and what he said at the very beginning um of the interview is was we were always sort of surprised at every step of the way <laughs> that we were we were being allowed to do this and the interstitials i think was the space i felt the most sort of delightedly shocked that someone was going to publish a book in which we didn't have complete chapters for everything we wanted to say um the the genre of of writing an academic chapter is fairly rigid and staid uh even though we we sort of push it that somewhat too. But I think these were spaces to me of just playing with ideas. Um, In a really short, fun format, it would be easy to teach. uh, And I've actually used Shelley's landmass (laughs) interstitial. (laughs) I assigned it last semester um, in a graduate seminar. And they were just great little spaces to just kind of like, here's an interesting idea, let's play around with it. Um, So I mentioned the folklore of small things already. Uh, I think the other one that that to me was a lot of fun to write was the one about um, about Snopes as sort of this popular and and to some extent populist folkloristics, um, and sort of the because Snopes went from being and, and Snopes is of course the the urban legend and rumor website and it started out as simply a collection of of urban legends and and sort of verification of them. Are they true? Were they not true? Um, And the founders were not trained as folklorists. They were doing this in their spare time. Um, They made up their own folklore society in order to gain access to archives. Um, (laughs) So there's this, I mean, there's sort of this fraudulence in their premise, and yet they are sort of they and have become especially as they've expanded and hired people and gotten into sort of you know the whole fake news era um, it, the the checkers of whether or not something is truth uh, and it it fascinates me that that you know even in in classes that I've taught that you know ten years ago when I started teaching folklore classes, I would tell my students to check snopes, and they would be sort of. Su- surprised that it existed. Um now they already all know about it. <laughs> and and yet we don't and those sort of even the way we cite it is kind of kind of funny like you know we we cite snopes not the not the people who actually wrote the articles even though the articles often reference folklorists um and so there's this sort of weird layering that takes place through the media or mediatization I guess it's a weird word. <laughs> um, uh, that ends up kind of playing with our ideas about not only what's real and what's fake, um, or what's verifiable and what's not. Uh, and of course, but also with ideas about genre, about medium, about how we, how we folklore, um, and what folklore looks like. And so that was, that was that one. It's fun
1: to write. Shelley, what about you? Do you want to mention one of your interstitial chapters?
2: Well, I have one on, um, Shirley Jackson and Stanley Edgar Hyman, which is a particular interest of, of mine, and one on on fan fiction writers and the connection between fan fiction and professionalization, um, which was so much fun because I just got to write about fan fiction. Uh, but I, you know the the one that Willow mentioned, the the landmass chapter, has been on my mind because. Uh, because we're moving into hurricane season, and the landmass chapter was really about uh, kind of an internet uh, meme that was expressed in a lot of ways uh, on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, uh, because it 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 contested that there was someone who at some point said that a hurricane was going to hit. On the landmass between Mobile, Alabama, and New Orleans, Louisiana, and and people in Mississippi said, "Well, you know that landmass has a name. Um, it's actually called Mississippi." And so this this landmass meme uh, really took off, and it's still going. I mean, it's been um, it's been quite a while since this happened, and I we we just recently went went through uh, another tropical storm and the landmass meme came up again from people in Mississippi uh, as a way to articulate uh, feelings of of absence, um, feelings of, of being ignored uh, by the popular by the popular media, um, and and as a way to say, you know, look, we are people who actually live here. And my argument is that it's really not about the, the Hurricane Isaac, I think, which was the one that the landmass meme uh, kind of Grew from, but it's about Katrina and the the narrative of the way that the Mississippi Gulf Coast is often absent from that narrative of of Katrina when the coast itself was real was was completely devastated by the storm um, and how so much of the media attention has been focused on New Orleans. But it's not just about that absence; it's about the way that that the people in the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Um, kind of justify that absence and, and again it has a lot to do with kind of race and class um, that the idea that that people ignore us because you know we are white so and, and of course they're not all white that's that's something I actually talk about in in the chapter. but this idea that New Orleans gets all the attention because that's this kind of of ideal of, of what people want to invest in when they're kind of talking about hurricane recovery, it's also you know it's a it's funny because the landmass meme is funny and they've done a lot of funny things with, but it, it also shows us how something there's an absence. Um, that the, the Mississippi Gulf Coast has been absence, absent from the conversation, um, and folklorists never really talked about it. Like There's so much work done and wonderful, good, compelling, important work about, about the aftermath of Katrina um, and New Orleans, but there's not that same kind of work about uh, the aftermath of Katrina and Mississippi. Um, but at the same time, it reveals these, these kind of decades, if not centuries old, um, kind of of problems and, uh, kind of the idea, uh, of, of white supremacy. I and mean, that's, that's, I'll just say it. And, and that in this, um, in in a lot of the iterations of this meme, you see people talking about self reliance and how if you just dig kind of just under the surface, this idea of self reliance is also about, about kind of race and whiteness. So it's both about how this meme articulates something very important about the absence of of people of Mississippi from the narrative, but it also articulates something a little a little bit uh, that a little bit. Um, that it can be both of those same things. That they can be both of those things at the same time. And I've said too much, so I'll stop.
1: <laughs> so we have taken up so much of your time and I want to thank you all for taking part. This is Shelley Ingram, Willow Mullins and Todd Richardson for talking about your book, Implied Nowhere, Absence in Folklore Studies. And I'll just remind people that the new books in folklore podcast is one of many that you can find on the new books network. Willow, Shelley and Todd have a wonderful rest of day and thank you thank Thank you. you
0: thanks